Hi, this is Elliot, host of Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and check out our Facebook page for all of the latest updates. If I could ask a small favour, please could you subscribe and review our show on iTunes. By doing this, you'll be helping us reach a wider audience and have a greater impact by challenging perceptions and encouraging people to live a more conscious life. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh. Powerful conversations helping you reconnect with your purpose. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Brian Morrison. Brian is the founder and managing director of Biz Social Enterprises, an organisation that aims to encourage local businesses and social enterprises to build relationships and trade with one another using the buy local model. You, re you regularly run networking events, expos and training events across the country with some of the UK's leading speakers and workshop facilitators and you donate 25% of your profits to local community projects. Brian, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Um, we've been working on this for a, a little while now, dating back uh, yeah, probably a few months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's great to have you here. Um, you know, I've been doing some research in your story and it's, uh, you've probably not had the easiest of lives, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I'd love to kind of share your story and, and hear all about it. So if we can start at the very beginning um, with, you know, your upbringing, where you grew up, what it was like and, and yeah, the, the whole story. Okay. Uh, I was... Uh born uh, with Max accent, you can probably tell. I was born in Scotland, up in uh, Glasgow, not mm -hmm. far from here. <laughs> and uh, uh, for the first six, seven years, I lived with my mum and my grandparents. And there was never ever a father figure around. And I, I remember I used to always ask, uh, where's my dad? And uh, I would get a quick slap and told to uh, stop asking that question from my grandfather mm -hmm. uh, that I wasn't allowed to ask that question it was a bad thing to do so I was always told that I wasn't allowed to ask it yeah. and, uh, so that was that and then uh, when I was about eight years of age uh, for the first time I remember my mum saying to me we've got a council flat we're going to live on our own and I just thought this is amazing uh, so we got our own house uh, when I was eight and we went there and uh, it was great to have my own room and a, a little kid but uh, I soon found out that uh, what people mean by when you're a single parent uh, and you don't have a father that you're treated differently by the other kids mm -hmm. so I was always uh, when we moved to this place I was always bullied uh, beaten up by the other kids who had mums and dads and brothers and sisters and it was only ever me mm -hmm. so uh, bullying was a big thing from a very young age uh, and it went on uh, until I was I'd say maybe 11 years of age when I came home from school one day and there were some strangers in the house and I wasn't too sure uh, who they were and uh, I shouted mum and there was no reply and two of the people or three of the people, I can't remember the number, 
said to me, your mum's in there with some of our colleagues, uh, we're going to take you with us. And I thought, well, you don't talk to the strangers, you're not taking me anywhere. And I started screaming and I was like forced out of the house by these people and uh, taken away. Uh, didn't see my mum and uh, long story short, I ended up uh, being taken to this uh, big house in the west end of Glasgow and uh, and then it ended up it was a children's home that I was being taken to mm-hmm. and I didn't understand what was going on uh, and I, I now know that my mum had mental health problems she wasn't at all well and she needed support so I then realised looking at, like that maybe things that were happening, maybe there was more to it. When I was asking about where's my father and uh, like and being told not to ask and things that had happened over that eight years. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, 11 years actually, when we moved to that house, the three years in that house when things didn't seem right. But as a kid, I didn't know what was right and what was wrong. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to the children's home and I started seeing love hmm. uh, and even though it was the people that were looking after you were staff, mm-hmm. it was it was it was weird, it was odd to have people like care for you. Uh, I'm not saying my mum didn't care, uh-huh. but I now think like uh she wasn't well enough to look after me. Yeah. Uh, and then, as I say, when I was in the children's home, it was like, wow, uh, I love being here. Really? That, yeah. But that's so unusual because I think the kind of stereotype or the perception is that, you know, people are kind of dragged up in these places, the environments aren't good. And you're saying that it was, I mean, how would you describe the experience? It was being, it was like being around other children my age, which never happened mm-hmm. in my whole of these 11 years because I was always bullied because I didn't have a dad around and I was with other people in a building where we all were in the same thing we were all there. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a mum or dad in this children's home, and we had people there looking after us. Yeah. And I loved it. Really. I actually loved it. And yeah, it was hard. I've always said I wanted to go and live with my mum. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go and see my grandparents, and I remember running away and things like that. And they they then decided they would keep moving me to other children's homes further and further and further away uh, every time uh, because I kept running away, going to the hospital to see my mum. Uh, if she was out for the weekend, I would go back to the house mm-hmm. and then she, the police would come and look for me and take me back to the children's home uh, because, and I didn't know then why, because my mum wasn't well enough, even though she was at home, they were trying to rehabilitate her to live back in the community mm-hmm. uh, but she wasn't well enough to deal with me at the same time so so yeah at first it was it was amazing hmm. in the children's homes yeah 
so, so how long were you? How long uh, end to end did you live in uh, in these homes? Uh, it's hard to it's, it's trying to remember because I was that young. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I was from around about nine ten. I'm sure I was in and out various times. I was never in foster or adopted or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was always children's homes. But then it was permanent from, I'd say, 12 until a week before my 16th birthday. All right. Uh, and I still, to this day, wish that they had not sent me home uh, the week before my 16th. And I always wondered why they did, but now I know because if you if you bring your 16th birthday in within the children's home, then they have to make sure that you're okay to right. become an adult. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they, they sent me home and it just it didn't work. So so what was that like? Uh, I hate it to say it, but they they sent me back home. Uh, and it was, I'd say, that week uh, until my 16th birthday was was awful because my mum was was not well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she had she had met someone uh, who had met in the hospital, fell in love, and decided that they were going to just try and become a couple and 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 live together and it was obvious after me being in care all these years that I wasn't part of that and I mean I, I, I always used to say I'll not ever say it but I can honestly say that I don't think I was wanted mm-hmm. uh, and then I just remember uh, on my 16th birthday one week later uh, so I'd been back in the house one week and uh, the bedroom door opening and uh, I just remember this envelope getting thrown at me and a bag and getting told to uh, not in a nice way to, to leave. Okay. Uh, that my mum didn't want me there. Uh, it wasn't working. Uh, and I remember there was £50 in the envelope because it was a lot of money in 1986. And uh, I didn't know what to do because I hadn't ever met cousins, aunt, uncles. Still didn't know anything about my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all I knew was the people in the children's homes because I was officially no longer in the system. Yeah, I couldn't go back there. Oh, I tried. But they said, Brian, you're 16. Uh, the services ended a week ago mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and yeah. I was then on my own, nobody, no family, didn't know any aunts, uncles, nothing mm-hmm. and I thought what do I do? So I remember uh, thinking, the, I mean you don't hear it much these days but back then there was a lot of people who used to say the streets are paved with gold in London <laughs> and, uh, and I thought right I'm going to London and uh, I was that immature little lad that I looked so young that they wouldn't let me get on the coach. So I ended up uh, going to, it was Hamilton or Motherwell, I can't remember, uh, to a little coach station and ended up going on with a big family 
making out I was part of that family to get on the coach. Really? Jeez. And uh, then brought my 16th birthday and uh, sleeping in doorways in London uh, with drug addicts, prostitutes, all sorts of different people. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that was how I started my adult life uh, on my mm -hmm. 16th birthday. Mm -hmm. Gosh, not very nice. Did Have you ever found out anything about your dad? Do you know yep. now? Uh, I do. My dad uh, actually, uh, what happened was that my my father uh, worked in the oil rigs and uh, for whatever reason they decided that the relationship wasn't working and uh, what happened was he used to come when I was a baby and he would come through from Aberdeen to Glasgow. My mum would meet him at the train station and let him spend some time with me as a baby. Of course, mm -hmm. I can't remember any of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then what happened was that one day uh, she he went through and she she stopped turning up, and uh, he didn't know where to go to find me, mm -hmm. uh, where to find her, nothing. Uh, and then that was it. Uh, he kept going. I've now found out from uh, the family that he kept going through to Glasgow at the same time hoping that maybe she just, my mum wasn't well one day and that she would turn up with me, but uh, mm -hmm. never turned up again. My God. Uh, so, so yeah, and then in, when I was seven, uh, he, I don't, I don't know if he was killed or died. Uh, there was different stories in the press, but he uh, worked in the oil rigs and he was poisoned uh, with uh, hooch wood alcohol, some kind of poisoning, uh, and him and his cabin mate uh, ended up blind from this chemical that was oh put God. in their drink. It was something to do with their drinks in their cabin. Somebody had put something in them, and uh, both of them ended up blind and, and then dying. Uh, oh. But I, I didn't find that out until I ended up like back in Scotland and I was in a supported housing project as a 16 year old, uh, 17 maybe. And, uh, and I said, look, can you help me to find out about my dad? And it was uh, thanks to that project that Grampian Police then came back and said, yeah, we've, we've uh, this is what happened, and then I got all the old papers, and uh, it was quite weird because I remember getting the newspapers at the Mitchell Theatre in Glasgow, and reading about somebody I'd never met, uh, and in in the article it said Brian Morrison because he had the same name, uh, and his son and daughter Gary and Claire, or Gail, I can't remember, and I thought, wait a minute. What? No, that can't be the same person. He's only got one son, Brian, Brian Morrison. And uh, mm. and then I realised that I found out that he'd actually got remarried. And uh, when whatever happened on the oil rigs was all gone public, 
-hmm. There was never a mention. They didn't look into his past. Right. So of course the press just mentioned his present wife and yeah. Uh, so so yeah. Gee. Uh, you, you mentioned obviously um, alcohol. Alcohol is something that has played a fairly significant part of of your own, uh, your I suppose within your own journey. Um, when did you originally sort of start drinking? How did that become a part okay. of your life? Uh, when I was in the the final children's home, uh, between the ages of fourteen and sixteen, I saw all the older kids uh, seemed to be happier, and and I always wondered what what they had, uh, and I wanted to feel like them. Mm -hmm. So I ended up starting to uh, the dog school uh, yeah, training. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and going to the parks with the older kids because all the children's homes in Glasgow were all in the West End and they were all in like the upmarket areas so that you the kids weren't going to be in a rough area and get involved in the bad stuff. Uh, so we used to go to, I used to go to the park with all the older ones and they were all drinking alcohol and smoking. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I was, I think, 13, 14. So I started drinking with them, and some of them were like 16, 17, some of them were 18 and 19, who they were the ones that were still in care when they were 16, so they had to look after them uh, until, so I was like the 13, 14 year old with the older ones, and they, they let me drink. Uh, and before long, I realized that I, I wouldn't say addicted, but I realised that there was something not right because I loved what it did to me. What, uh, how it, would you? So how would you describe what it did? What was the thing you were looking for? It blocked out a lot of the crap uh, that was going on in my life uh, because within the the system, mm -hmm. uh, I was being abused. Uh, as a child within the, the children's home. Mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, in the community, there was uh, somebody that was also abusing me. So I couldn't go anywhere and report it mm -hmm. because I was a kid. Uh, and when I was being abused by the, this person in the community, I couldn't go back to the children's home and report it because a member of staff there was also abusing me. Jesus. So I couldn't tell anyone what was going on in my life, that I was mm -hmm. being abused, uh, sexually abused mm -hmm. uh, by these people. So the alcohol was helping me to block that out. And I ended up getting to the point that I needed more and more. So I would end up being with the older kids when they were all getting drunk, I would go into the bag, I would take some alcohol out and I would hide it in the park somewhere for later mm -hmm. when they all were back. Uh, there used to be many fights and because they they were all accusing each other of who stole the alcohol. Mm -hmm. I was a little 12, 13 year old in the corner, 14, mm -hmm. uh, looking innocent uh, and they didn't think for a minute it was the younger one that was stealing the alcohol and hiding it. Yeah. 
and then later when the abuse was happening maybe that evening uh, I would run back to the park and I would get the alcohol uh, to help me sleep that night and block out what was going on mm. and that went on uh, until well until I ended up getting out, out the care system uh, and going to London my 16th mm -hmm. and uh, and by then I was a daily drinker yeah uh, and then of course it was like working to get money uh, to keep up to being able to afford that uh, because because we all for these years in the children's home everybody we all put our pocket money in together mm -hmm. to buy the alcohol mm. uh, so it ended up quite a lot of alcohol that we were storing places yeah. to be able to drink because we were all young you didn't meet, need much to get drunk yes uh, and well before I was 16 because I was taking a lot more than them because I was going back and drinking more mm -hmm. uh, knowing where it was hidden I was ending up drinking what I'd hidden and I would go back to the sheds where the alcohol supply was and climbing in because I was the little young one and drinking more uh, sitting crying I remember crying in the shed knowing that I'd just been abused, uh, didn't know where to go because mm -hmm. all I knew was that I'd been in care for a number of years. There was various children's homes I was in where I said earlier, like, I loved it, everybody loved me. And then I went to this uh, final children's home where most of the staff loved me, but there was the, the one that just... Uh, was all out for himself mm -hmm. and abusing children. It's awful. H how long did you drink daily for? Uh, <laughs> uh, that, I tell you, as I said, that was about 13, 14, uh, when it was daily until I was 16. And I was, uh, well, it was the 30th of June, 2005, so it was, uh, was that 20, 20 years? Yeah. Uh, daily drinking. Uh, but getting more and more and more uh, over the years where lots happened. Yes. Uh, so, so what sort of impacts did that have on your, your life throughout that period? Wow. There's <laughs> <laughs> uh, so much. I would... I would wake, when I say, uh, you'll hear a lot in this interview, when I say wake up, what I mean is, is that it's like a blackout, mm -hmm. uh, where I would wake up, that's the way I say it, and I'd be in a room, or I would wake up in a bed, and I'd be like, how did I get here? Uh, and it would just be weird, and then I would, I would, ask people in this house like where am i and they would look at me oddly saying well you've got a bed sit here you live here and when did i move in here no memory uh, and because they thought i was like crazy 
they would like say, look, you're not living in here with us, there's something not right. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't have any memory uh, until I remember looking at newspapers uh, and losing months. And the very, the, the last time that I remember where it was really bad was getting a newspaper once and it was a different year. And that really, really worried me because I went, wait a minute, I could have done anything in that year. Why can't I remember anything? Uh, And I mean, when it all came to light was that uh, I remember I was, uh, again, woke up, come out of this bubble. And I was in a house uh, in Aylesbury down in Buckinghamshire. There was a big party. Uh, a load of people around me and I said to somebody beside me look I'm really sorry you're going to think I'm insane but I don't know where I am I don't know how I got in this room what town am I in mm-hmm. where am I because I just like it was like all of a sudden just landing there and it ended up that this person said uh, you need to get help and I went why and he he said to me this guy that was sitting beside me he said uh, this is your house he said uh, that's your partner there of a few years and I went what and it ended up the uh, me and a, the person that he pointed to uh, were in a relationship living in this big house in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire I also found out that evening that there was a car outside in my name uh, and I had passed my driving test uh, and was living a life in Buckinghamshire where I don't know how I got there don't know uh, to this day I know I've been told how I met that partner, but to this day don't ever remember meeting. Uh, and all these people in this room were all friends. And I didn't know anybody in that room. And uh, the, the three years, I think it was. My God. And so I'd been living in that relationship, moved to the other side of the the UK uh, and was living in a relationship in a house with a job uh, I mean I even had a job as a security officer and uh, none of it to this day don't remember any of it and and do you think that was related purely to alcohol well it, 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 at the time I didn't ever put it down to alcohol because in care nobody ever said to me Brian, uh, I smell alcohol on you. Mm-hmm. All the kids were all from different children's homes and we never ever get questioned. Uh, it was just, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's just something that kids in homes did. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. Yeah. Just uh, an odd one. Mm. That's unreal. So, so how did you um, kind of overcome 
the addiction that you had? What was the, your recovery process? Uh, it took many years. Uh, I, when, as I say, I was nailed to in Buckinghamshire, I said to the, this person that everybody said was my partner, mm -hmm. I mean, to this day I still don't remember meeting, uh, look, the, what's wrong with me? And what I was told was, uh, look, your mum had mental health problems. I think maybe you've got... So So I just... I grabbed onto that and I relieved that because my mum had mental health issues, mm -hmm. that I had it, even though I didn't know about mental health, mm -hmm. I just thought, okay, so that was it. I thought it was mental health. Uh, and for many years I would forget things, not know what I was doing. Uh, again, come out of blackouts and I'd be in different cities, uh, living with this partner still, I don't remember meeting, until, uh, I don't know what year it was, but I woke up uh, in a bed and breakfast and uh, went downstairs and I said to the people, look, where am I? And they, and they looked at me a bit odd, and they went, you're in Blackpool. What am I doing in Blackpool? I've never been to Blackpool in my life. And they went, well, you booked in last night, your car's outside, so I'd driven to, to Blackpool. I mean, I, I've always said uh, to a lot of people, uh, I laugh about it now, I always say I'd love to be like, maybe a networking group and love to bump to that driving instructor <laughs> because yeah. I, I just don't know how I got to pass a driving test in blackout. Yeah. Uh, so so it, it, that's when I realised that there was that something was not right because I was running to the shop, I was wanting more and more alcohol and I realised that I was starting to shake when the alcohol consumption was going down mm -hmm. and the longer that I didn't have a drink, I was shaking and then when I started taking fits and seizures uh, and then saying to my partner, please run to the shop and get me some drink and as soon as I got the, the bottle of vodka in my hand and quickly took it, Within 10, 15 minutes, the shakes would go mm -hmm. and I'd be normal again. Uh, and and then I realised, wait a minute, this isn't mental health. This mm -hmm. is to do with what I've been doing since I was a kid in the home. Uh, and I thought, how do I stop? How do I feel like everybody else be normal? And... And I didn't know how, so I remember going online and trying to find out how I could, what these feelings were. And online it was saying like addiction, how much do you drink? And, and, and then I started waking up. Uh, when I say waking up again, I mean blackout. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it was getting worse because I would come around out of blackout and I'd be in police cells. I would be in mental health units, uh, I would come around and I'd be sitting in accident and emergency. A couple of times I've came around and I've had wires all around me 
uh, where I've completely nearly died and it was all down to the drink but they kept charging me and saying go and get some help never actually offering it yeah. just saying go and get some help uh, and when you're dependent on alcohol while you're in hospitals uh, and it still happens today in hospitals you go in there the the police take you there or you go yourself and you say please help me i've got a drink problem they say when was the last time you had a drink five minutes ago i'm an alcoholic mm -hmm. uh, i can't live without it i've got it in my pocket and until you sober up the mental health team tell the medical team when this person's sober then ring us back and we'll come down and see the person but the thing is you're never sober because mm -hmm. you're having to get more drink to stay normal mm -hmm. uh, so i would be walking out the hospital to go and get more drink going back uh, and they would say you've had more i'm like yeah because i need it i can't i'm taking fits mm -hmm. and and that's the way it kept going on and then i just had enough and i thought right i can't live like this and then i started thinking i would want to end my life i don't know how to live anymore and i remember the when it again got worse when i come out of this another blackout and i was on the roof of the like the, a tower uh, and it was at the Blackpool Victoria Hospital and I remember I was on the roof and there was uh, loads of people shouting, uh, there was firemen, uh, the roads were blue lights everywhere and I was actually on this this tower, I uh, don't know how I got up there and they had blocked off all the roads because I had climbed up, I'd got out of A&E and said if you're not going to help me I want to end my life and I ended up climbing up this building to jump and uh, the, somebody came out and talked me down. I don't remember very much about it. I remember a little bit of it being on the roof and, and crying and saying, why do I come Why should I come down? No one's going to help me. And the, the police saying, look, they will help you. We'll make them. And then I actually remember coming off that roof that night, the police taking me in and saying to the hospital, look, you need to do something, he's just trying to jump. And they turned around to the police and they went, not until we sober. So uh, the police ended up taking me into custody because they knew what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I was admitted to mental health wards and they would give me medication that would, they, they give you instead of alcohol that does the same. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, when you're discharged and they send you home, the first thing you want is drink. Yeah. So it it wasn't good. And near the, the, the very end, I keep saying near the end, but near the very end uh, was when I knew there was something more serious. When I was uh, coughing up blood, going to the toilet, there was blood. Uh, anything I did, uh, there was blood coming up 
I was incontinent. I couldn't walk for a hundred yards at the end of it all, that I would be incontinent, wetting myself, I couldn't control my, my whole system. Mm-hmm. And if I was walking to the shop to buy the drink, I was so weak because I wasn't eating, I was down to goodness knows what weight. And if I was incontinent, I wouldn't stop and walk slowly back home the alcohol was in front of me and I'd walk into the shop smelling and dirty uh, to get my litre of alcohol. And that's when I was on like the litre of vodka in the morning uh, until the bars opened. And then I'd be in the, sitting in the bar all day. Uh, and then when that closed, another litre of vodka to go home with. So I was on like two litres of vodka a litre in the morning between like 8 o'clock and 11, three hours, and then overnight I've had another litre and all the drinking in the bars throughout the day. And and I always say, did everyone used to say to me, how did you afford it? And I had no idea to this day how, but my partner, this partner that still don't remember ever meeting, keeps saying to me, you just didn't eat, you didn't eat, you didn't know, everything went on drink. And if I had run out of drink, I would ring people that I knew drank and I would walk and walk and walk, even 15 miles sometimes to get one can of lager to stop the shakes. Uh, And then they they did the test uh, the last time that I got rushed in and they said, look, Sorry, but there's nothing we can do for you. Uh, it's either you you die, and that was in March 2005, around my birthday, uh, and they said that the results weren't good. They would give me six to 12 months to live. Uh, possibly, if I stopped drinking, they might be able to extend it, but there was no promise. And I said, if I was to stop, could I uh, like be okay? And they went, with the results, we don't think so, but we're not saying no. Uh, and I said, well, what do I do? How do I stop? I've tried. I've tried to kill myself because I couldn't stop. I'm 35 years of age. How do I stop drinking then? I've been doing it since I was a kid. Uh, so it was then over 20 years and they and then I got a phone call uh, saying that they'd found me a bed in a treatment centre. There was no promise uh, of what it could do. Uh, and I just, I just remembered these test results and thinking, what do I do? And I thought, I need to do something because I, I couldn't, I just felt embarrassed with being incontinent and not having a life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I remember the, the 30th of June, never forget it, uh, 2005, I got a knock on the door and it was uh, this guy, John, and he said, I'm here to collect Brian. And uh, and he, he was taking me to the treatment centre in Eccles near Manchester. And uh, that was a horrible journey because I had a litre of vodka uh, because I was still shaking and everything. I was smelling, I was incontinent all the way down the road in the car. 
but uh, this guy was in recovery from addiction and he and he said don't worry let's get you there uh, and he knew that I needed that drink mm-hmm. uh, and then we got there and they said uh, we need to take that bottle off you and to this day I mean if even inside me now it's like uh, knowing that I was just about to take my last swig of alcohol mm-hmm. and then go into this unit. Uh, never forget it. It was nine 9.20 a.m. on the 30th of June 2005. And, uh, and I went into this detox unit and uh, was safely taken off the alcohol because a lot of people out there, unfortunately, uh, don't know that if you're addicted to alcohol, the last thing you do is stop. It's the opposite of what you would think. If you uh, stop without being medically uh, reducing it slowly mm-hmm. or have the medication, that's why I was taking the seizures. People can die. Uh, I mean, it's now a fact that alcohol is now of doing what I do now. I now know that alcohol is the only drug that you can die actually withdrawing from out of all the illegal drugs out there mm-hmm. the legal one is the the mm. one that you can die withdrawing yeah, from yeah it's quite powerful stuff yeah yeah so knowing what you know now if you were speaking to somebody who was in the position that you were in what would you suggest that they do first thing they do is number one don't stop drinking mm-hmm. the, uh and they, they get themselves to a doctor straight away. Uh, everywhere now has got an alcohol team. You don't even need to go to your own GP. Mm-hmm. You can ring up uh, your local, local alcohol service. Uh, they're everywhere now, everywhere. Uh, and if you're too embarrassed, just even go online and, and Google recovery and in the name of your town mm-hmm. and get somebody that's in recovery from addiction to support you in going in and getting help. But definitely don't stop drinking because yeah. you can die in anesthesia. Jesus. I didn't know that. Do you think alcohol should be legal? I get asked that a lot. Do you? Uh, <laughs> and knowing what it did to me, and knowing what it's done to a lot of people since I stopped. I don't know, but people should make their own decision if they want to drink it. But seeing what it's did to a lot of my friends that I've met through the recovery journey, uh, people are no longer with me. yeah, I think it should not it should not be legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's killed a lot of people that I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I've said that before, sometimes to people, they've like, yeah, but that's just because you the problem. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but do you remember anything when you go out and you have a drink and you keep saying to yourself, I can't remember what happened last night? Mm. That's not normal. Yeah. Not to remember something. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, and all this, these campaigns about increasing the prices, I just wish they would do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe just get up, gone forever. Mm-hmm. Because they, even people that binge, 
binge drinking is worse because you're shocking your body. Uh, you're not gradually drinking. You're, you're just shocking it. Yeah. And to say when you wake up, oh, what a great night, I can't remember anything. Is it right? <laughs> Is it normal? Exactly. To not remember something? <laughs> uh, yeah. And that should, and straight away, that should be why it shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I still go out now, I still go out to clubs and all that, but uh, a lot of people don't agree with it because they think you shouldn't be there. Uh, uh, but the thing is, I, I like a social life as well. Mm-hmm. I just don't touch the alcohol. Gee. So wh- what's your life been like since in the 2005? Wow. Uh, when I came out of treatment after 21 days, uh, I just thought it was weird that I was sober. I hadn't been sober to me ever because I was a little child when I started drinking. Uh, what I did struggle with uh, straight away, even within the first day of coming out of that detox centre, was trying to live in the community because I'd never been shown how to... I mean, remember the last time I didn't drink was 12, 13 years of age. Mm -hmm. I was in a children's home. I'd never been shown how to cook, how to wash, uh, how to go shopping, how to iron clothes. And I'm now 35, I'm an adult. I don't know how to do that. I've always had drink. Uh, so that was the that was the strangest thing, was that I didn't know how to live out there in the community yeah. and having to learn. And it was thanks to a network of people that supported me that were in recovery that that got me through that mm-hmm. uh, because that was the that first year was just hell uh, serious hell I mean that relationship that I kept mentioning uh, that I had been in it ended up that that started that relationship started in 1989 and it uh, ended uh I think it was exactly a year uh, to when I stopped drinking. So 89 until 2006, uh, because very, very quickly realised that the relationship was very, very unhealthy. Uh, Violence, uh, everything. Uh, So thanks to the network of people again that supported me, I managed to get out of that and try and lead a, a normal life, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't know how to. But I'll never forget, like, when I was one year sober and leaving that house, uh, leaving that relationship and uh, going into this, like, little flat and sleeping on a mattress on the floor, no furniture, and crying every night for months because I'd... The last I remember, I, I'd never ever been alone. I was a kid, I was in a children's home, 
there was always somebody there, mm-hmm. and here I am at 35, alone, uh, and it, it was tough, but I got through it, and then I, I thought that, wow, I've managed to stop like find out what it's like to be alive. That's what I kept saying. And I ended up thinking, God, somebody has to tell these people that alcohol is dangerous. And I was crazy, I was even more mad. And I was like trying to tell the world. I was writing to the newspaper. I was everything, trying to say, look, this is what alcohol did to me. Uh, It's evil, it's evil, it's horrible stuff. And, it was quite funny when I look back because I just thought I need to get everybody to stop drinking because that's what it did to you, yeah. not realizing that it doesn't do that to everybody. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, quite funny. Uh, I used to go out there and uh, I mean, I, at one point I had I remember the the police in Blackpool knew me very well from the drinking days, and they they seen me in the newspaper once. And uh, I was helped to run some support groups in the alcohol service that got me, helped me get off the drink. And uh, and the I got a phone call this day, and the woman in charge of the the alcohol treatment support service in, in Blackpool said, "We've got the police coming to see you." And I went, "Why?" And I thought it was to do with something I did in my past. Mm-hmm. And uh, this police officer turned up and he went, uh, I'm just confirming that you're this Brian Morrison. And I went, yeah, he goes, can you come with me? And I thought, okay, I know when the policeman says come with me, it's not good. But it ended up that uh, he wasn't arresting me. He took me to the, the main police station in Blackpool to the staff canteen. and. Uh, all these police officers were there and like they were all in shock that Brian Morrison, who everybody had picked up in their police van at some time over the years, they thought that he had died or left and went back to Scotland or went back to another country or moved around and they couldn't believe that I was sober because this guy who had done nothing was bother to them for many years. Every police officer in Blackpool knew me, and they couldn't believe that the guy they saw in the newspaper was the Brian Morrison, and that I hadn't a drink in a long time. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, at what stage did you eventually get involved in networking? Uh, it was, again, I was trying to set up my own charity to support people in recovery from addiction. And I thought, what do I do? How do I get money? Uh, You couldn't get funding. It was quite hard to get funding to run the projects. And a lot of people, I used to see people uh, online and everything saying that businesses sponsor uh, help to donate. So I thought, right, let's uh, do a search and find what networking is and uh, I found a company called Four Networking online and I went, right, businessmen, businesses, I've got loads of money. Uh, I'm going to join this company with my last bit of money and go along and uh, get them all to hear my life story and give me money to help other people. So 
So, uh, yeah, it was funny. I did remember just going online, buying a membership before I'd even been, and uh, going along to that for networking, and soon found out that businesses don't have a lot of money to give me. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but realised that uh, I loved networking. I'd found something uh, for the first time in my whole life, something that I loved. And it, and, it, and it was there, it was networking. Uh, and to this day, it's, if anybody said, what do you love most? Uh, number one is definitely my sobriety. But uh, apart from my little sister and stuff like that, it's definitely networking. Yeah. It's, it's, I just love it. What is it about it that you love? The people that you get to meet. Uh, Definitely not about selling, because uh, I remember, again, I'm mentioning for networking, but going along to different meetings over the, the first couple of years, and uh, everybody would laugh. They would go, Brian, what are, you, what are you called this week? What company are you working for? Because I'd be signing up to this company, this opportunity. I would be an affiliate for this. Uh, and I just did it because I wanted to be part of Fort Networking. <laughs> uh, so I, I quickly found out that the, my, my, my charity project couldn't get any money from them. And I thought, well, I need to be a business to be in this. What do I do? So I just used to join anywhere just to get to go networking. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it was weird. So that's how I get into networking. Uh -huh. So when did you decide to set up Biz Social? That was uh, I when I I when I went along uh, to for networking. The there was two things. It was about trying to get money from businesses, business owners to donate money so that I could help people in recovery. Mm -hmm. And I never ever thought business was anything to do with me. Uh, and. Uh, I just thought, wait a minute, I'm not being looked down on, but people were looking at me negatively, going to networking meetings, begging for money, and I could tell that they were getting sick of hearing me get on about, uh, I'm doing this if you want to sponsor me. Uh, and I thought, we're not, I don't see anybody doing it. Mm -hmm. And I thought, right, I'm going to set up a networking group where charities and businesses and social enterprises and we can all come together and support each other mm -hmm. and then somebody said to me uh wow uh, a good friend she she tested me in her car she was i know what to call it and i goes what she was business and social enterprise and i goes yeah she goes business biz business social social Bit social, <laughs> and we come up with that. Well, she came up with this idea, and uh, the following day I went online and uh, I said that, uh, I was launching a company called Bit Social, uh, and it was to bring businesses to work with social enterprises. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so what does a day in your life look like now? And what does the work, now, what does the work entail? Uh, now it's. Uh, getting up it because now it's completely it's totally professional and i and i, I know what route i'm going down i'm getting up 
in the morning at five, five thirty in the morning. Wow. Getting ready to go networking, uh, and then coming back, networking online, going and finding another group for the evening, coming home, and again networking online to three, four in the morning, uh, and 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 just doing that and just doing that every single day. And I realized after a short period of time that I couldn't afford to do that, just go to networking groups. Uh, so I then decided not long ago that I had to start focusing on bit social uh, more uh, and stop going out to all these networking groups uh, <laughs> because I should be at Biz Social trying to grow my own. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, just recently uh, started putting more into Biz Social, and this last couple of months is a hundred times more successful than I ever thought I'd be, and 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 it's not all to do with money uh, because. There's definitely no profit at the moment, but everybody seems to love this model that I've created about businesses and social enterprises coming together because social enterprises and charities out there have got funding. They need the services of everyone. There's nobody in a networking group, business networking group, that cannot help a social enterprise or a charity that need the service. They need the product or the service and the business needs the clients. Uh, and after lots of research, there is not one, if anybody out there knows any, tell me, but there's no networking company out there that brings businesses and social enterprises in that together. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't believe that I've not found anything anywhere in the UK anyway. Really? And it's the models just, I mean, this last week even, uh, I've launched, over the last five weeks, I've launched six groups, uh, some at two a week, and the numbers, I just can't believe the interest I've got, and I've just never been so happy. Really? And it's all to do with networking. It's, it's weird, <laughs> and it's just to do with people, uh, getting to know people, uh, how I can help them and that's what I mean I said there a few minutes ago it's not all about money I would go to a networking group if I had maybe £20 in my pocket and I didn't know what I was doing where my next sale was coming from or membership or somebody booking a stand for an expo or anything uh, I would... <laughs> Crazy, I would lose that last £20 to put £5 in the car for petrol to go and pay £15 for a networking group <laughs> because I want to get my name out there uh, and get the name Biz Social known. Yeah. And, uh, and it's worked. <laughs> That's brilliant. I think there's some um, maybe kind of cynicism from some people about networking that they don't really see the sort of value in it, but... Clearly, it's something that you, uh, yeah. you love. The last thing you do is, if you're going to networking to sell, don't go. Don't go. Uh, 
everybody everybody would go to sell then. Uh, Don't go to a networking group uh, expecting to sell. It's the last thing you do. Go in there, get to know people and Mm -hmm. build relationships Mm -hmm. and then they will come and they'll buy from you. But don't go in there to sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't expect anything going to a networking group and uh, saying after going to four or five meetings oh this isn't working I'm not uh, I'm not renewing the membership or I'm not coming back it takes a lot longer to build a relationship than a couple of meetings yeah definitely uh, yeah. but yeah it's definitely about relationship building mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I mean reflecting back on you know your life. Um, do you, I don't know if you ever think about whether the things that have happened have happened for some sort of reason, or do you ever look for like a, a, a deeper meaning in the things that have happened? Insofar as you know, if you think about having some sort of purpose in life, do you believe that those things had to happen for you to be able to fulfil a higher purpose? I don't know. I I used to always uh, think that way that. Uh there's a reason why something's happened uh and and i believe that there was like i had to go through that to get where i am until uh 2011 when something major happened in my life and and i was six years sober uh i didn't think i'd ever even consider wanting a drink and then uh, I was and something happened which I thought it totally took it away from me thinking well these things have happened to get me here but the issue was that my mum had been killed in a house fire and I remember that night as if it was last night and and that changed everything I thought how can my mum be killed in a house fire? That happened to make me continue going. And that that did bugger me up for a bit mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I everybody was t- worried about me because I went up to Scotland to deal with everything and, and to see that it was true what I'd been told. And I remember arriving there and they were still putting the fire out. Uh, I mean, this last couple of weeks, uh, has brought it all back because of London. Yeah. Uh, and but then realizing that I had to accept that that was life and that it, it happened, and I, I can't put that down to like me not moving forward. Yeah. Uh, because I I almost did drink uh, in 2011. Never forget it. It was. Uh, uh, I mean, it's coming up to July, uh, so we, my, me and my sister always go back to where it happened and we put flowers and that down, but uh, I, I I, personally just need to move on and accept that it happened and there's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, rem- I mean, even though there wasn't a relationship there with my mum, uh, I, I just... I always do wish for one thing that I'd maybe sorted stuff out with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we we were we were talking, uh, but nothing 
major because uh, she she wasn't at all well. Mm-hmm. So, but I I ended up getting over it. I had to. I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, and thank God I didn't lift a drink. And then uh, deciding that right, I'm just going to make a success for myself by doing something. And I wasn't sure if it was going to be the charity or business or anything until I joined for networking, of course. Mm. And then uh, I mean. I, I I mean it's 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 crazy to say that, but I say it to so many people. Uh, even though I run my own networking company now and I'm running business and social enterprise networking groups, that I can honestly say that for networking as a company, uh, if that model had not been made and Brad hadn't set that up, and I hadn't gone to these meetings. Brian Morrison wouldn't be, BizSocial wouldn't be here, uh, even though BizSocial, the name didn't come from inside. It was like through everything in 4N, getting up and doing a four, my 40 second, a foresight, uh, talking in AA meetings, all brought me out my shell mm-hmm. uh, to be who I am today. And and I can't say for the first time ever that, and I used to laugh at people that said I love myself, but for once I actually do love what I'm doing. I love myself, and and drink, death, all of that is nowhere in my life. I'm going to be here for a long time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't even know where I don't even know what my last question was now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I suppose I'll, I'll, I'll kind of reframe the question then. I mean, what do you feel at this stage is your kind of purpose in life? Uh, to Purpose is definitely to go out there and help people. Uh, and my aim is that I want to do that in a number, as I said a few times already, it's not about the money. Uh, I want to be able to... Uh, make the social massive because I want to be able to get an, a, a great organisation out there that's supporting people uh, in recovery from addiction, mm-hmm. that have been abused, that have been homeless, brought up in care. I've got these five things that I want to make sure that an organisation that I managed to launch uh, with enough funding uh, can help these people but also uh, because of unemployment and everything out there, is to help people coming out of care, people coming out of detox, uh, to look at working for themselves, help mm-hmm. them to set up in business, uh, tell them to network, because it's the only way I got here, hmm. uh, and just help people, help people, help people, help people. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of people say to me, you're doing you're doing things the wrong way, you're doing things for free. Uh, well, it seems to be working now that I've done all that stuff for free, helping people and everything, uh, because everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people like want to be, join uh, Biz Social, be a member, be, be seen as part of it, mm-hmm. because they know they, it's not just about the money, it's about where 
what I'm doing with that money. Yeah. I'm helping people as well. Yeah. Uh, where before, when it was just the charity and I was going to networking groups, mm-hmm. I was begging to be able to support people, but I was using my last bit of money. I wasn't eating. I was putting five pounds in the car for petrol to go and help somebody that was struggling with drink, and I wouldn't be eating. I wasn't looking after myself, mm-hmm. and I had to change my frame of mind and realise that Brian, you come first. Mm-hmm. and then you can help other people mm-hmm. and and that's the way that it has to be or else I can't help anybody yeah exactly yeah yeah definitely hmm. what do you think you would like your legacy to be uh legacy not been asked that one before <laughs> uh to be the the I don't know, just to be the guy who had had nothing, uh, who thought he was dying, to then, uh, I mean, it's what I, when I'm doing foresights and that, it's like I name them from the drunk to success, uh, that you can change. Mm-hmm. That's it, you can change no matter what. Uh, I know people out there that people have said they... I mean, I've still got people to this day saying that uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous that they see me and they go, God, we remember seeing you and we, you were the one person in Blackpool that we thought would never, ever get it. Uh, so, so, yeah, I don't really think I understand the word. That's probably right. I'm saying that. But, but yeah, just the guy would go out his way rather than help himself to help others mm-hmm. because that's all, all I've ever done. I got a call uh, last night and uh, it was somebody within four networking who I'd never met and uh, and because of me openly sharing my story in 4N TV, on uh, four sites, online, I'm an open book, uh, that this member, uh, somebody in our life was struggling. And the good thing was that, uh, for me, was that uh, I was coming to Glasgow today because I ended up, this person was in Glasgow. And I just thought, wow, that's, that's, that's not normal. That wouldn't normally work that way. Mm-hmm. But it was great that I could uh, leave the house at like half four this morning instead of leaving it later to drive up and go and see this person and try and help them. Yeah. Uh, and and it was it was it was like how much do you charge and like that what do you mean again going back to the past i would never charge people anything and it was like i don't want anything um look i've been there i know what it's like i'm not Mm -hmm. coming up because i charge 50 pound an hour as a an alcohol worker (laughs) uh you've run you've got to touch me through for n somebody struggling with drink i've driven up early from blackpool to I mean, I've I've done it before. I've I've drove to Ed, I've drove to Edinburgh from Blackpool when I'm not even coming this way to meet somebody that's struggling, uh, and that's just me. It's the kind of person I am because I know it nearly killed me, mm-hmm. and and I believe now that because I've been there, that I'm not saying alcohol workers and people through university and all that are no good, but I think the best ones are the people that's been there that have lived it 
because as, as you said earlier, not many people out there know that withdrawing from alcohol can kill you. Because mm -hmm. uh, the professionals don't <laughs> say it. They're yeah. too scared to. So, mm. yeah. How do you define success? Being happy. Mm -hmm. Being happy. Uh, that's it. Being happy. Uh, it's definitely not money. Mm. Uh, no. Just being happy. Uh, that's it. <laughs> being happy. Being happy with life. And I never ever, f in any time throughout my whole life, I can honestly say that uh, I've ever been this happy. And it's cool. I just. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't take any drink to do it either. So exactly. it's even better. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best piece of advice that I ever received was being told that I had to go out and tell the world my story. Uh, as soon as I started doing my four sites, I keep mentioning, people don't know what four sites, just like talking about my life or whatever mm -hmm. uh, in presentations being told, look, you need to tell the world. If you don't, you're, it's not right, it's wrong if you don't. You have to go out there and tell the world because there's a lot of people out there that think that they can't live without alcohol. Mm -hmm. It has to be shown that they can. A lot of people think, uh, I've been in care all my life, I've been abused. Uh, I mean, a lot of young people, unfortunately, most mainly boys, that are young boys coming out of care and suicides and everything, is to try and get a message out there and say to all these people, and, uh, I mean, that's why I pick homelessness, abuse, uh, and, and addiction and all these things, because mm -hmm. I've picked the things that I've been through uh, to tell them there's a way out, and that's why I want them to see they can set up in business, they can, I never thought, I, I couldn't even afford anything. I remember, as I say, walking for miles for a, a can of lager. And, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you had the opportunity to speak to the 20-year-old you, what would you say? It's okay. It's okay. Because mm -hmm. I, I thought I had nothing. Uh, even though I had a mother, uh, that it's okay. It it will get better because back then, homeless on the streets, uh, and all I wanted to do was drink or take some pills to overdose or. Uh, but yeah, just it, it's going to be all right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just get help uh, because a lot of people don't I didn't I thought it was mental health because my mum had mental health issues yeah uh, I think people need to know I mean, that's a big big major thing that my message is out there that people have to stop worrying about asking that question how much do you drink hmm. people won't ask the question because they're 
they don't want the person to think that. But if you don't, nobody asked me when I was in care, nobody asked me uh, for years, and it almost killed me. You need to say, if you, if you think there's an issue, you need to say, look, how much do you drink? Mm-hmm. And if anybody tells you, this is another thing, anybody tells you uh, an amount, triple it. We don't tell the truth. Hmm. Always mm-hmm. triple it. Uh, because while you're locked in addiction, you won't tell them the truth. And it's always known to at least be triple. I used to say a half a bottle and it was a litre. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Gee. If you could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Gosh, if I could change anything. Nothing. That was a hard one there, because I'm like, but nothing. Really? I wouldn't be where I am. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, I would love to my mum not being killed in the fire, and uh, the the child abuse, these two things. I mean, the addiction, I believe, as you mentioned earlier, there was a reason for that, to help me to help others. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the child abuse and my mother uh, being killed in the fire is the two things that I would, the only two things, mm-hmm. apart from that, nothing. The addiction, the the all the police that used to hate me, uh, and everything. Uh, it it was all for a reason, and mm. it's great. I mean, because I've now been back in police cells uh, on the other side of the door, being trusted by the police in custody, saying, "Hi, my name is Brian. I'm in recovery. Uh, I'm lying there in that urine, like you're lying in. Uh, can I help you?" And before it was me in the cell. Yeah. Uh, so there's a reason why I went through that to, to get where I am today. Mm-hmm. Brian, thank you so much for, um, for an amazing interview. Um, thank you. The work that you're doing, I think, is absolutely fantastic. You are genuinely an inspiration. Um, and, you know, I think that what you're doing and sharing your message to help other people is absolutely brilliant. I really do. Thank so, you very much. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome. Thanks so much for, for being on the show. And I, uh, I wish you all the best with everything that you're doing. Great. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Inspired Edinburgh. Please come and find us on social media and leave us a review on iTunes. Many thanks.